0: Welcome to Off The Record, I'm your host Marika and I'm a dietitian, nutritionist and recovering perfectionist. Join me each week as I bring you raw and real conversations with inspiring men and women discussing matters in health and nutrition that are often swept under the rug. Sit back, relax, pour yourself a cup of coffee or a wine and enjoy learning from conversations that help us to understand the messiness of what it means to be a healthy and balanced human. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Off the Record. Now, today's episode, I am joined by Nicole Cooper, who is a patient advocate and health consultant. Nicole was sadly diagnosed with advanced bowel cancer in March of 27 as a 32-year-old and was told that she would likely die within two years. Now, Nicole looked for a second opinion and found a team who were prepared to think bigger with her. She has had incredible results and remains under active treatment and dedicating the rest of her week to improving care available to cancer patients. Nicole is so inspiring, and I walked away from this episode just thinking, wow, what a way to redefine health and to repurpose yourself in such a situation of adversity and crisis, I guess. Um, So I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did Uh, Let's get in. All righty. Welcome, Nicole, to the podcast. Now, I'm actually really excited to hear about your story today. Um, And also, I think it's a story that, you know, we can all sort of learn something from as well. Um, And I guess what I've sort of read about your story is that it's this story of, um, not only resilience, but also through sort of advocating for yourself and standing up for yourself in the face of um, medical crises. I guess, could mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about um, your story and, I guess, how you you came to be here
1: today? Absolutely, thank you, Marika, so much for having me. I okay, so I am. A person who was just flying through life, having a great old time. I'd had a baby in 2016, um, and he was beautiful. And you know, we were just starting a family. I'm married, um, and I'm sort of recovering from being a new mum and feeling really sort of tired and run down um, over an extended period of weeks. And I talked to my family and my husband about this and eventually I think, you know what, I need to go see a GP. Like I'm just not feeling good after giving birth. Um, I went to see the GP and the GP said to me, look, to summarise, Nicole, you probably need to change your expectations as to what life is like when you're a new mum. So I was a really busy, um, professional mum. I had a lot of opportunities. I did some flying back and forth across the country. I was working as a consultant. Um, and I had a six month old baby, but I still, I was starting to lose a bit of weight more, you know, probably, um, aggressively than I had perhaps anticipated would happen. And a lot of people were saying to me, my God, you look amazing. Your body has bounced back so quickly. Lucky you. And this like sort of Voice in my head the whole time saying, "I don't feel good. There is something that isn't good about my body at the moment." And when I had that response from the GP, I was like, "Right, okay." I felt quite ashamed, really, um and a little bit guilty that I had been perhaps prioritising myself and my career in, instead of my baby and, and that role as a new mum. So I went off with my child between my legs for another couple of months. Um, and then went back to see my own GP, who wasn't there the first time, and said, "Look, I I need help. I, I'm not functioning. I'm not, you know, I'm on, constantly exhausted. I'm, you know, my body's just like I'm dragging it from here to there." And he said, "Well, let's just start looking." So <clears throat> he commence commenced basically with, with a whole kind of series of blood tests and stool samples and um, just introductory kind of scans, things like ultrasounds and those sorts of things just to sort of see. By this stage I was having a little bit of abdominal pain, a very you know small amount, so it was a logical place to start.
0: Yeah. And with that abdominal pain, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, just to interrupt. With that abdominal pain, like if you had to rate that on a scale of like 1 to 10, what would that have been at the time?
1: Two. Yeah. 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 Like I guess it was a. It, it wasn't a lot at all. It wasn't interrupting me in my day or anything like that. It was more that it was just. It wasn't mm-hmm. there before, so it was something else to to talk yep. about. I guess. Um, so we found some some um, what looked like potentially lesions in my liver. Everyone at the time, so lesions, you know, like just kind of lumps on the ultrasound. Um, Everyone at the time was very relaxed about that and said, it's okay, this kind of stuff happens in in females who've been on birth control for a long period of time. Um, We're going to send you off for an MRI that will confirm that it's, you know, nothing scary and nobody used the the C word at this point, Mm. but everyone told me it was going to be fine. Um, And then I went for the MRI and was called by,
0: were you worried at this point?
1: Um, I was probably less worried and more just really happy that someone was listening, to be honest, and that we were actually going through this process. I was like, okay, everyone's like, I trust the medical professionals I'm meeting. They're all saying it's, all, it's going to be fine, and this is kind of interesting, and I haven't had an MRI for a while, you know, like this is all very exciting and new. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't really worried. I felt like I was being taken care of, really. Um, and finally, someone was listening, and, and maybe we were going to have an answer, and then I would feel better. Um, but the MRI showed that they were malignant lesions, cancerous lesions, and that this was cancer that had spread to my liver, which meant that I had a primary cancer somewhere else in my body. We didn't know where. At that point they thought almost sort of 80% they said it was probably a bowel cancer, but it could have been a breast cancer as well, Um, so we had to do a colonoscopy to confirm that, and it was a bowel cancer and I had stage four bowel cancer as, you know, a brand new mum with a with a baby boy.
0: Yeah, and at the age of 32, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, which is obviously really young for bowel cancer because bowel cancer is one of those um, conditions or diseases that we sort of uh, almost sort of assume that it doesn't happen to young people and it's almost something that, you know, we don't need to worry about. And being a dietitian that's worked with a lot of people with irritable bowel syndrome, it is something that I'm always very aware of because, you know, when people present with these symptoms, it's it's always the front of my mind to rule out anything more serious. And, you know, for obvious reasons, we want to rule out those more serious things. But um, like you've said, like, you know, when you're presenting to the doctor, particularly, you know, as a young, healthy person, it's, it's almost feeling like that it, it's so low of a risk that it's even not a risk.
1: Absolutely, yeah. 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 That's um, that was exactly I think the response was like that about uh, you know among my medical professionals it was so it was so much shock that this had happened because bowel cancer is understood as an older persons disease um it's it you know is influenced by you know lifestyle factors that we can uh, kind of understand its relationship to to diet and to you know things like red meat and to not having a sort of a particularly active lifestyle and all of those you know you know factors that build up in a lifestyle and then can create you know polyps that aren't taken care of and then yeah. we've got sort of um, someone with a, a later in life bowel cancer but this was a stage four bowel cancer so as advanced as you could get um, in a 32 yeah. year old mum who you know I was really fit I was running all the time I was eating all the kale yes. um, and, and it was just a total <laughs> surprise all the boxes. to everybody
0: and I guess that's something that and I want to sort of point out to I the, yeah I want to point out to the audience here is that you know we shouldn't all be you know going home and being super worried about you know being fatigued or anything like that because it is quite rare to um, to present with so few symptoms and to obviously have it at a young age. Um, but the statistics are, you know, that, that 1 in 10 Australians will be diagnosed with bowel cancer under the age of 50. So it's not something that we want to completely, you know, push off our radar altogether. But um, I, I also want to be very mindful that, you know, we don't want to freak everybody else out at home, that, you know, just by having fatigue doesn't mean that you've got stage 4 uh, bowel cancer. Um, but what sort of, I guess when you did find out this news, what, um, direction did the, the, the doctors take then and, and how did you sort of feel receiving that information? Obviously it was, you know, devastating, I assume.
1: Yeah, it, it was the, obviously the most heartbreaking thing that you can ever be told because I was sort of sat down, um with an oncologist I had no idea what an oncologist was um a specialist cancer doctor who you know we ne- I'd never had any cancer in my family I, I we zero family history you know so I, I was very overwhelmed but very mm. um perhaps I didn't even understand the sort of the tragedy of it when I first learned it because of my lack of cancer experience mm. and so sitting down with an oncologist who you know I said well what's you know, what's the prognosis for a disease like this? And she said, well, you know, everyone's different, but someone on a treatment like the one I'm about to put you on lives for somewhere between 18 months and two years. Awesome. And that, like, for someone who's got a six-month-old baby, like, I just couldn't, I couldn't co- even comprehend that. Um, and it was just the most heartbreaking scenario. I was there with my husband and we had both of our mums in the room, all four of us with the oncologist, because it was just so – traumatizing. Um, And, you know, yes, a a very, very sad thing. But what we kind of felt coming out of it was we need another opinion. That was just a natural kind of instinct for me. Um, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. To, to go and ask someone else completely different about about what they thought because, you know, I was, I was basically told because there was so much cancer in my liver that would remain inoperable. So even if we could, you know, had a response to chemotherapy and could cut out the primary bowel cancer, we've got all this other cancer in other sites of my body and you just can't save a person who's that far down the track. So um, I went to get a second opinion um, and the second opinion well, Completely different team. Yeah, so I went to a new surgeon first just to get his perspective on my liver. Um, and he said, well, y- yeah, this is a very advanced disease, but I think what we need to keep in mind yet is that we haven't done a PET scan. So if you, if you don't know cancer, a PET scan is a scan of the whole body that checks for other cancer sites outside of, of, of the known primary cancer and, and other places that may have spread. So the primary was in my bowel, we knew it was in my liver, but what if it was other places? And the surgeon kind of said, we don't want to start treating you only to find that you then you have an amazing response, maybe in your liver and in that primary cancer. So then we start to think, well, maybe we could operate because in a solid state, you know, you know, a solid tumor, like a, we're not talking blood cancers here, we're talking about tumor cancers, um, mm-hmm. cure is kind of happens when we cut it out, right? That's what you want to get to. So chemo is great and it's an enabler for surgery. Um, and that's how you can overcome something like bowel cancer. Um, so he said, you've never had this scan. Like we haven't even spoken about this with the other oncologist. And I said, no, you know, there was no discussion of that. And he said, well, I think you should meet another oncologist who I work with. I think you should get this whole body scan. And and he kind of recommended a couple of other things that I should do too, which was really flooring for me because I had just. Um, met a doctor who was, you know, very well-respected um, team who had said there's not really much that we can do here and now I was meeting another team who was saying, well, yeah, it's a really, really bad situation but, A, we should try to treat it and, B, we should have all of the information we need before we start that treatment process so we actually know what we're dealing with. mm
0: Wow. And so how did you then feel walking out of that second meeting?
1: Very uplifted, really. Um, You know, it it was from that point, really, that I was like, I'm going to be fine. You know, like they sort of talked about this kind of 1% chance, really, of having the kind of response. There was, you know, over 13 um, tumours or lesions in my liver, like there was more cancer in my liver than there was good liver. Um, And I was starting to really get, some symptoms of, of being on an approach to liver failure, you know, like it was a really, really bad spot to be in. But once someone said to me, we're going to try and it's going to be horrific in terms of treatment, it's going to be really hard work and it's unlikely to work, but we're going to try. (laughs) Um, That just changed it for me. Like I just was suddenly like, okay, fine let's do it. This is now what I'm going to do. This is, ev- this is everything. This is my focus. I've got a six-month-old baby or eight-month-old baby, sorry, at that time, um, and and I'm doing this for him and I'm doing this for my husband and this is my job now and this is what I'll do. And I just, uh, I guess, applied the same tenacity and and the sort of achievement orientation that I have from my career and everything that I've done and just went, this is what I'm doing now, and then I became a full-time cancer patient. Uh,
0: I, I kind of love your approach to I'm a perfectionist at heart and that sort of like would be, I assume, my yeah. approach to it as well. I was like, you know what? This is it. This is my thing. This is what I need to do. And this is how I'm going to do it. Um, but no, I, I really appreciate what you said. How that when you got that sort of glimmer of hope, almost, and and as you said, it was sort of like a one percent glimmer of hope. It wasn't something that you know a lot of people would actually even appreciate as a glimmer of hope. But that small amount was enough to then completely flip your mindset. Mindset, sorry, around what the next few months, the next few years, potentially is going to look like. And you know, somebody who is um, knows obviously a lot about you know nutrition and health and everything, and The power of the mind as well is just phenomenal. So I I also wonder what sort of effect then that actually does have on your prognosis as well, just being able to have the belief that, you know, somebody else who actually knows what they're talking about and everything, you know, they're an oncologist, they've part of a surgical team as well Mm -hmm. having that belief both in yourself and from somebody else uh, actually has on your prognosis and um yeah your i guess progression through the entire treatment and obviously it's not going to make you Mm. know the treatment easier it's going through chemotherapy as you will know better than anyone else is not a fun time um but having that just glimmer of hope is just i think that's just so powerful what you've said is it's it's just that smaller thing that if we could get obviously you know that we've need to balance up in the medical system the being realistic and providing hope mm-hmm. and i think that you've sort of shown yep. two perspectives there um i guess i'd love to hear your opinion on obviously people you know doctors do need to be realistic when it comes to the outcomes that they're expecting what would your opinion yep. be on how could somebody like how could a doctor balance that realism with the optimism so that it gave you obviously a realistic overview of what might happen, but also still give you that optimism.
1: Mm-hmm. This is such an interesting question, particularly in, in cancer care, right? And we've got, you know, a bajillion diseases that we could talk about, but my expert knowledge is in cancer. And, and I think when you're not inside cancer, you understand cancer as a, a disease, and actually it's not. It's so many diseases. It's hundreds of diseases, and it's not just lung and bowel and, you know, prostate or brain cancer, but it's within those categories, so many different diseases. And, you know, I have a bowel cancer that's treated a certain way, but the next person along could have a bowel cancer that's treated in a completely different way, not just because of its, you know, advancing nature in my body, but because of my genetic makeup and the things that are going to make this cancer susceptible to, to chemotherapy treatment or other immunotherapy treatments or whatever else is out there. So I think that because all of those things exist, it's almost like, the initial diagnosis conversation that a medical practitioner has with a patient is almost too big to even start to comprehend the end date. Mm. You know, we need to start at the start and the start is we need to do all the investigative work and we need to then know what sits in the control of the Doctor and what sits in the control of the patient, and I think that when we talk in healthcare, as you would know, a lot in you know 2021 language is all about being patient centred and being patients, you know, centric and making sure that patients feel like they own their own health and their journey and, and their you know um, approach to their healthcare. But we have to empower patients to do that, and if we don't give them the information and something to own and be in control of then we we really don't have an opportunity to put them at the centre of their care, right, because you would know from doing all of your training and study that, you know, anything in the medical, you know, realm is enormously complicated and not something that you can just, you know, do a a few quick Google searches and feel confident in doing. So a doctor needs to identify the thing that a patient can control um, and give them that thing to look after, you know, like this is something that you're going to look after, and you're going to come to me every time we have this consult, and you're going to tell me what you've done in your patch, and I'm going to tell you what I've done in my patch, and together we're going to own this journey. Right. And for me, that was very much wow, that's to so it. powerful. Yeah, I guess, you know, for me it was related to exercise. So when I was prescribed chemotherapy, I was also told you need to exercise. The evidence around exercise is that the benefits are so compelling, they could be equal to or even better than some things on the PBS that were pumping into your system, you know, better than these chemo drugs, better than these immunotherapy outcomes. The exercise can be so powerful in terms of what it does to um to the cancer itself, what it does in terms of enabling your body to get back in the chemo chair. So that was my little project so that every day or every fortnight when I was back chatting to my oncologist, when I saw my surgeons who were keeping track on me to see whether I would be operable one day, um, I would report my exercise outcomes and my progress and I was the fittest I had ever been in my life in the middle of my chemo regime um so that was awesome you know like it was mine my whole family understood that that's what Nicole needs to do she needs nutrition she needs sleep she needs rest she needs mindfulness and she needs to just get in the gym and work out Um, and and so that's I think that's how I think about that approach of being yes pragmatic with the realities of a stage four cancer but like any any kind of AI machine can pick that information up and tell you that you know what's what makes a doctor valuable is the fact that they're a human and they can build a human connection absolutely
0: yeah and and that's what i am all about when it comes to health and nutrition is pulling out that human side of it and bringing that to the forefront um what i think is i guess one of the the big challenges i guess whenever you do get that c-word when you get that cancer diagnosis the first thing that does come to your mind is well how long Mm -hmm. and i guess like you said is that that's almost not the time to be asking that question but it's probably the first thing yeah. and you might be able to sort of explain better but it's probably the first thing it definitely would be the first thing on my mind is what are we looking at mm. but like you've identified maybe it's actually not the time and the place to even be having that discussion yeah but I guess you kind of want to walk away with an answer to that discussion from that initial set off as well
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's because that's how we're taught to think about cancer, right? When we see cancer depicted on TV shows or in Mm. movies, which is really the only time we want to talk about cancer when it's in some kind of non, like not in our life kind of fictional thing that's happening over there and isn't our experience. They talk about, well, how long do you have left? What's the prognosis of this disease? And, And that's always a really sad thing. But But there's so many things that can influence the prognosis, and you can have an understanding of um, of what a treatment regime should look like, but how that impacts your own body and what you're able to do, and how long you're able to stay in the chair. You know, so like we're talking now. I've just had my four year anniversary of my cancer diagnosis, so I'm four years clear, and right now I have. Thank you. I have no evidence of disease in my body at the moment, so I'm cancer free and alive four years later, and. And I'm not dead 18 months into it. And if I had only thought about the fact that I was gonna die 18 months from now, then then that might have just happened, right? Because as you say, the power of what happens in your head is so central. And I was just not having any bar of that. I was like, no, I'm gonna be treated for this disease and I'm gonna make myself last as, as long as possible. In the same way that I, you know, just I just had that approach to life, right?
0: Yeah, and that's that's so inspiring. So do, you did have this approach to life prior to the cancer diagnosis as well?
1: I think so. I just would call myself just, a you know, a glass half full person who just is very committed to the fact that I'm going to have, you know, a long life and... Um, and and long lasting relationships and and going to be a, you know I didn't become a mum to just kind of be around for for a couple of years you know like I want to I want to grow old with my husband and I want to be a mum and a grandma and all of those sorts of things you know and and so that once I was given the permission to continue to think that way about my cancer then I did
0: yeah and, and that's such an incredibly and powerful thing to to do um and you mentioned with your exercise that you were your fittest during chemotherapy which is a, a feat in itself because i've worked on chemotherapy wards as a dietitian before and um it, it's not it's not yeah. easy on the system so for those who have uh, sort of not known anyone who's gone through chemotherapy or cancer treatment um it's a, it's a brutal thing and like nausea is not even the word to explain it it's just it's awful um how did you manage to get up and exercise what did that look like and would you do you have any words for anyone who might be going through something similar to sort of help um help them along this journey
1: sure yeah so for me I um was very um realistic with the fact that like I I need I need help right I'm not just going to be able to just go out and do this I was you know I'd had a had a baby so I was dealing with like the fallout of that pelvic floor issues and all sorts of you know like recovery from an episiotomy and and so I needed to make sure I was being really careful in the way that I was that my body was you know recovering and and then kind of moving through exercise so I went to see an exercise physiologist and um I think I would just that would be my number one recommendation to anyone who's got any kind of medical um consideration, whether it's chronic disease, whether it's just, you know, a bit of a, a bad knee, <laughs> whatever it is, you go to the professional, right? Um, and, and that's that's why these people exist and they're specialists in their field. And I went to go see an exercise physiologist and, um, and got some really specific advice. And, and that, of course, became really important to me as we went on, because I've had so much surgery. Like we've just cut every opportunity we've had we have sliced and diced me um, um, and of course every time that happens you know like your core like I've had two massive abdominal surgeries on my liver I've had a bowel surgery I've had six lung resections and then two other thoracic um, surgeries so in my chest wall I've taken out a rib um, so every time you do that to your body you're changing the stability completely and so you need to work with a professional to get you to, you know, um, a a safe and healthy place in terms of exercise. So, um, but in terms of, you know, like it's been so interesting for me because I've had to start again so many times and that can be really deflating. You know, like there was a certain point where I was running eight kilometres. But like growing up, I was the most non-fit anti-sport person. I was like forgetting my school, my sports uniform (laughs) on purpose. (laughs) Hated it, hated it. (laughs) Really? Yeah, it's so crazy. Faking sick on
0: sports days. Like every sports carnival, I would be conveniently sick.
1: Yes, absolutely agree, totally me, and now, like people call me an exercise advocate, and I'm like, "What a joke, this is crazy <laughs> but but I am because I understand the impact that it can have on your life right and 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 what it can drive in you in terms of motivation and and of course what it's done for me in terms of um, recovery and and just management of my cancer so you know, but to have to start again, you know to go from someone who was you know confidently running eight kilometers to then having all of these lung surgeries, like I couldn't have the lung capacity to to walk up the stairs you know most days so um so I have to challenge that and train that back again and again and again and that was really at times so monotonous and really um sorry really draining and um but 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 again still because it was my problem and I was in charge of it I really you know most days are good days in terms of of taking that on as a challenge and um yeah I've, Mm. I've done pretty well.
0: And did you have any sort of mantras that you would say to yourself, or sort of any statements that you'd say to yourself on the days when it was really challenging? Because as somebody who has is only injury prone, like I can't say I've had all of the surgeries or, or all of the you know the challenges that you've faced. Was I've just an injury prone person, and I certainly you know have days where it's just like oh, like I'm I'm hurting and I don't really want to do this. Is there anything that you sort of use as a tool um, to sort of get you up on those days and to even get you, you know, out and moving your legs or going for a walk or something like that. Um, I'd love for you to share yeah. if you had anything that sort of worked for you.
1: So the phrase that I have, like, coined and, and used, <clears throat> sorry, I was, <clears throat> sorry, post-surgical cough. Um, <clears throat> the, so the phrase that I um, have you sort of coined and have used for the whole time really is three words life is long Um, and not everyone has a I guess a a sort of a life and death interaction to kind of (laughs) give them the motivation to go out there and and live life um, the way that you know you potentially want to be able to live it but but because I did it just opened my eyes to the fact that so many of these little decisions that we make every day we're thinking about and we're reflecting on in terms of how we feel on that day and in that moment right um and I had just had my eyes open to the fact that it doesn't really matter what I feel in that day and on that moment what matters is am I doing things that are going to enable me to get through this and to survive and and I still don't know whether get through this and survive means reaching a stage of being cured or just keeping it under control for as long as I possibly can um but that, that was my mantra. Life is long, life is long. Get out of bed, get on the road, put your activewear on, life is long, you know. Um and that's that's what I've said to myself again and again.
0: Yeah, and were you able to find, like, pleasure and enjoyment um, during the chemotherapy and during, you know, these times where it, it is obviously quite a, a tough time and you're sort of, I don't want to say forcing yourself to exercise, but, you know, you're pushing yourself to to do these things. Was there enjoyment there with the exercise and with looking after yourself and knowing that you have got this element of control, though?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it did feel it's a component of exercise that felt a little bit like um, like a chore and like, you know, as important as chemo. And therefore, I sometimes would complain that I, that I still do, that I don't get the same release, you know, that I can't just like, just go and do it just for, you know, the sake of, of doing it. Um, and so then I've tried to sort of cut cut my exercise up and sort of say, okay, well, I'm going to do, you know, like four strength um, based or, you know, resistance based workouts in a week. And they're going to be my cancer fighting workouts. And then I'm going to go for, you know, a six kilometer walk and that's just going to be Nicole time. Um, and so that's the way I carve that up, I guess. Um, so we do some cancer fighting and then just some movement for movement's sake. Cause you know, it's a good human thing to do.
0: I love that. And being able to separate it then also, Yeah, it does give you that mental space to get the enjoyment from exercise as well because I'm somebody who needs to exercise for my mental well-being and my GPs even said to me, like, you know, Marika, exercise is like your medication. You need to take it pretty much daily. Um, yeah, And for me then it does It does turn into a chore sometimes. It's like, well, oh, I don't really want yeah. to do this. So then how do you find yeah. enjoyment? So that is such a fantastic way to sort of, you know, spread it out and go, okay, these are the things I do for enjoyment and these are, like you said, the cancer-fighting workouts,
1: which I love. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, they're really tough. And so, like, it's the power of positive thinking and all of that kind of stuff, you know, like as I'm pushing things and I'm moving heavy weights around because I was, you know, doing bench-pressing stuff and, like, I was on obviously taking chemo, I was on steroids as well and so I got like massive shoulders <laughs> in the thick of this <laughs> stuff you know I was just like a completely different person um but not know, recommended just sort of, you know like you kind of visual yeah <laughs> I <I'm> just <laughs> I'm um you know visualizing like uh, those positive kind of, you know, like that cell activity in my body, and you know, everything going after the cancer cells, and um, uh, like that. That was, you know, they're really intentional workouts that are a lot of g'ing off, and and the stuff that I did when I was really sick and on really harsh chemo, I worked out a lot with other people. So my brother, in the first instance, I worked out with him. Um, the chemotherapy I did made me really super um, sensitive to cold, so. I would like lose feeling in my hands and feet Um, going out into like, you know, the winter's day in Melbourne, my whole face would would sort of freeze up and I couldn't speak properly. Um, Kind of felt like my throat was closing in just from cold air, cold drink, anything like that. So, Um, And I was really scared of germs too, and this is in a pre-pandemic world. Um, So I just didn't want to go into a gym. (laughs) There was germs there as well. Um, Didn't want to go into a gym, didn't want to, you know, so we worked out in the park. So even though it was only like 10 degrees in the middle of winter in Melbourne, I had my boots on and my gloves on and my like, you know, like, yeah, that's, that was just what we were doing and I did that with my brother and that was amazing and then eventually when I got stronger and my body was good and, and I, you know, it was really my immune system was pumping, then I got in the gym, worked out with my husband and I have worked out with my mom, and, you know, it's it's like a, it's been a real kind of game changer for us in terms of family and lifestyle and, and the way that we spend quality time together too, which is, you know, it's there's always, I just think that there's always a, a glass to be filled up, you know, in terms of opportunity and, and how to take a situation and, and drag some real positive stuff out of it.
0: Wow. It's such an incredible outlook. And I guess there's obviously challenges that come with, with all of this. What would you say are the biggest yeah. challenges that you've faced over the last sort of five years um, when it comes to this diagnosis and the effects that it's had on you?
1: Yeah, it's not all rainbows, definitely not. Um, it, identity would be the biggest one. Identity. I just, you know, I I'm a um, like I, I, I sort of came from the from from corporate world, right? So I've got you know a double degree and I did a, an MBA and I had a really great um, job in as a management consultant. Um, and and then I decided to have a baby, and so I was like thinking that I was just kind of parking my corporate future for a minute while I became a mum and we did that and kind of got on with that. Um, and then before I even mm-hmm. had a chance Surprise, to, you know, yeah, it's gone. And and it's not just that now corporate life is gone, but mum life is gone too. Like I had to stop breastfeeding, like overnight that was it because you're going to be on drugs that will flow through breast milk and you can't. So I just w- was in such a state of mourning for who Nicole actually is and was and, and because, as I've acknowledged, I really had to become a full-time cancer patient being that person now four years down the track is, um, it, you know, yes, I'm very motivated and driven, but but I see other people just doing normal life stuff uh, and I'm like, I, I want to be that person, you know, like I want to have a, a career achievement or I want to have a second baby or I want to have, you know, whatever the case may be. And so that sense of identity and just knowing who I am and what I'm doing um, and why I exist and, and what I'm fighting for sometimes, although, you know, of course, I'm fighting for for Josh, my son, and um and my and Tim, my husband, and and my family. But, but sometimes you really, you know, in the low points, and there's plenty of low points. You just get really, you know, like all of the hospital admissions, um, you know, countless nights in hospital by myself, particularly during COVID. You know, there's just so much alone time, and you just sit there thinking, I'm so sick. And I'm just the, you know, all the treatments give you so many complications, and then you're in, you're in hospital because you've got, you know, colitis, or you're in hospital because you've got pneumonia, or you've got, you know, they're not even cancer problems per se. But so yeah, that sense of identity um, has been a, an ongoing issue for me, um, and it's really what kind of motivated me to to write about my stuff sort of originally, and then to start live it living it more publicly on, on Instagram and really living the patient experience and, and what it is um, and then also kind of looking at, okay, well, how can I, once I was ready to start working again, I basically said I'm going back to work and I'm going to do consulting but only in health um, and and just change the game really in terms of the way that we think about patient-centred care and what that actually is um, and then also just advocate for patients and just have more conversations about this stuff, about cancer, about, you know, just normalising, less about looking for symptoms and more about acknowledging that, um, you know, by the age of 85, one in two Australians are going to have a cancer diagnosis that they're facing. So this is something that we have to be talking about. It's not something that we can just sort of put off down the track.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the fact that it's happening to so many people, like you said, one in two by the time that they're 80, 82 I think you said, um, and it's like we've even, we've both said during this conversation, the C word, like it's a, it's a word that's in itself, like is almost like a taboo word to talk about because it's, it's such Absolutely. a scary thing for so many people. And I mean, again, one of the purposes of this podcast is having these conversations about, you know, these topics that people don't want to talk about. But it's so important mm-hmm. that we do because if we're not talking about them, then what we're doing is we're inadvertently putting shame on the people who are going through them because they feel they can't talk yeah. about them.
1: Yeah, I could not agree more. And this is something that I'm very passionate about at the moment is this idea of guilt and shame attached to a cancer diagnosis. Um, and it's something that I like. I've got quite a community of, of cancer patients around me and their families or people who've had people pass away from cancer. And they say that the the guilt of the finger pointing around, well, what is it that you ate? Or how much stress did you have in your life? Or so you had lung cancer, you were obviously a smoker or, you know, and it's so unfair, right? And, you know, we spoke earlier in this conversation about the fact that we don't want everyone panicking about, you know, having bowel cancer because they're a little bit sleepy. But equally, we need to understand that, you know, those risk factors around lifestyle exist because by the time we get to later in life, we can start to see those patterns and understand that if you've lived a lifetime of smoking or lived a lifetime of processed meat or lived a lifetime of sedentary lifestyle, you're just at a higher risk for things. But so many people, young people are being diagnosed with bowel cancer at the moment. It's not because they ate some sausages. That's not what is happening, right? There's random things that are happening in terms of cancer cells and the chaotic um, nature of of cell growth in our bodies, that there is there is random stuff that is happening and it's not that someone, you know, should have gotten more sleep or shouldn't have been so stressed. And we need to really acknowledge that because it is such an alienating experience to be told that basically it was your own fault that you've got cancer.
0: Yeah, exactly, and that you're then responsible also for curing it through your diet and your exercise and all of that sort of stuff as well. I yeah. think that that's yeah two sides to the same coin. Um, But no, I I absolutely agree with you in the the sense that, you know, we can't sort of stigmatize these conversations around it. But also I think that the reason why people, you know, do sort of point and blame is because they almost want to go, well, that's not going to happen to me. And this is why it happened to you. So by pointing and blame, they're almost sort of, they feel like they're protecting themselves from this happening to them yes. because, well, I eat kale and therefore you obviously yep. didn't or, you know, you smoke and I didn't, so therefore that's why you got it. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I think yep. it's important that we do, you know, speak about this and go, it, it's not protecting you from saying that and it's actually harming that other
1: person. Mm, absolutely. And, and, you know, what protects you from cancer is being aware of, sorry, <clears throat> um what protects you from cancer is being aware of those signs and symptoms and, and you know going after things and, and doing you know participating in screening once that becomes available to you and and then just having ownership of your body but yes pointing the finger and saying well you've got cancer for a reason and it was choices that you made and as you say they are in the management of your cancer the reason you're not having great outcomes is because you're not looking after your lifestyle. If it was me, I would make smarter choices, you know? Um, I've got plenty of people who message me and say, should you be having that spicy margarita, you know? Um, and it's it's a totally unfair thing to do, right? It's like, these are my choices um, that I've made in, in consult with my very large team of medical professionals. Um, but people do feel very entitled to, to pass that judgment and it is a self-protection thing. You know, as humans, it separates us from the trauma um, and, and I understand that, But it's but it doesn't help anyone.
0: Yeah. No, it, it doesn't at all. And like you said about having the spicy, mar- I mean, I'm, I love spicy margaritas, so you've convinced me there. but um, on, on that note, is, that is something that I hear a lot of from people is that, oh, well, you know, can I have a little bit of chocolate? You know, isn't the sugar going to feed the cancer or, you know, is the alcohol going to, yeah, I'm glad you rolled your eyes at that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's putting so much fear and it's like, well, anybody needs to live their life and if having a spicy margarita is living your life and if having chocolate is living your life the effect that it's going to have on you know your pr- treatment progression and those sorts of things is so minuscule if it's going to have anything at all. I mean, if you were living on chocolate and spicy margaritas, it's probably not the best diet through chemotherapy. But it, having them, you know, once a week, once a day, whatever it is, is not going to have any impact. And when you do feel like when you're in a treatment like that, where you feel that there is a time pressure on you in terms of living your life, why would you not? I, yep. I would just be the, the strongest advo- advocate sorry yep. for I'm going to do, yes, what's right, you know, as a, according to the doctors, but I'm also going to make sure that my life is lived and I'm not going to live on fruits and vegetables uh, because I'm such a foodie and I'm going to make sure <laughs> that spicy margaritas are part of that diet. <laughs>
1: <coughs> so... um one of the things that I have a lot of discussions about is the fact that, you know, as health professionals, um, and, and you're very much, you know, in, in this category, if you can normalise that conversation so that people understand that that's okay, that's where empowerment comes from, right? And, and I think this just doesn't happen enough. So when someone says to their doctor, can I have a spicy margarita, then they'll go to the research and, you know, all of the, like, here's the deep statistical analysis. And it's like, no, that's not the kind of conversation we need to have that's not empowering for a patient who's got cancer today let's have a real conversation about actual risk factors and lifestyle choices and and what the, you know what the goal and the point of this conversation is at the moment and and i've had that you know conversation many times with my doctors for this like nicole we just need to get you through another 12 rounds of chemo and another four surgeries and another so whatever you need to do to keep you going you do that <laughs> like just do that um and whatever you're doing so far is working so just keep doing that so spicy margaritas for everyone we're on girlfriend we're going
0: <laughs> yes done done <laughs> I'm <there. laughs> um no that's incredible and I, I think the same could be said again like you've obviously been incredibly motivated with exercise throughout this this treatment and you know the same could be said with people that they really do feel like they're forcing themselves to exercise and like like we said it is something that's important and an element of your control within the treatment but if it's something that's yeah. making somebody miserable it's something worthwhile talking to your team about
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. I just feel like, you know, any aspect of what you're trying to do in your you know, life is is just down to your own control. And I think, you know, when we turn this whole experience into a medical experience that has, you know, some um, diagnostic sort of tools that are happening over here with scans and biopsies and colonoscopies and whatever, and then we're sitting down and we've got a prognosis and then we've got a treatment and then we've got a recovery. Like, that's not what health is actually like. That's not what it is like. It's just life. And why you've got treatment for this very specific thing you've got all of these other things that are happening at the same time and you've got complications and you've got your bad knee and you've got mental health issues and you've got all of those other things so as part of that whole package you just need to be doing the things that 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 make you happy and the things that that are easy for you and and the things that are going to keep you doing what you're trying to do i guess particularly for something like cancer treatment
0: yeah you are speaking my language that is my definition of health <laughs> On that note, how would you define health now and what does health look like now compared to maybe what it looked like for you a few years ago compared to maybe five to ten years ago?
1: Mm -hmm. So I am very conscious now of this idea of chronic disease and just how many chronic diseases are occurring in particularly in Australia, you know, in our population. So there is a version of health that can still be burdened by disease um, and and sometimes disease is, is just a reality of, of life. And I think as we're going through life and, and we've got more and more tools to find disease and to find problems and issues in our bodies, then we need to get comfortable with the fact that health just isn't like a perfect score of healthy body and, and no associated problems. You know, I think health is just finding a way through you and what you're encountering just to be your best version of yourself. Um, with whatever it is that you have, Ugh, have. Which to me that is up. what health is. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I've got a whole bunch of issues at the moment that I'm trying to deal with, and hopefully I live to, you know, be sixty or seventy or eighty. By the time I get there, I'm going to have so many complex issues to deal with as a product of everything that I've done here, and I'll just do that in in the best way that I can. You know, in the in the way that makes me feel my most best self, you know, and that's what healthy is. And, um, and I do feel like you can be healthy with a really acute disease, with something as, as nasty as stage four cancer, because I demonstrated that I could be certainly. Um, but you can be healthy with a chronic disease if you found a way to make it work for you to use diet and exercise and mindfulness and all of the things that we typically associate with health. You can still have all of those things and have a body that is just a little bit disagreeable and maybe you're having to fight it a little bit more than the person next to you. But that doesn't make you unhealthy. It just means that you just have to perhaps work a little bit harder for it.
0: Yeah, and the way that I sort of see that is that health is about the things that you are doing rather than the outcome that you're achieving from those things or like the body, the actual health status or, you know, the uh, disease-free, disease-freeness, I don't think that's the word, but the ability to be free No, Yeah, Um, yeah, the ability to be free of (laughs) complications, that's not your definition of health. The way that I see it is very much that health is Mm -hmm. what are you doing today? What are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing the next day? That are moving you in a direction of health as opposed to your status.
1: Yes, but, but the problem is, right, is that the health system doesn't think about health that way.
0: Unfortunately, yes. Right?
1: So so you would know this and yes. And so a lot of a lot of um, your listeners may or may not know this, but the way that the health system thinks about health is that like you're either at zero being dead or one being perfectly healthy or somewhere between there, right? Um, and and that's not helpful in terms of, you know, trying to empower people in their health. And and it's not helpful to characterize someone who's got, you know, a lot of complications and, and arguably a different quality of life in terms of the work that they have to put in and the resources they may need to draw on in order to be healthy but it doesn't make their life less valuable. Um, and I think that our health system is set up in a way that interprets a life that isn't ostensibly from the outside, you know, perfectly healthy because it doesn't have a formal diagno- diagnosis attached to it, you know, that, that's, that a healthy life is a one without a, a diagnosis. And once you've got a diagnosis, well, you've no longer got a healthy life. And that's, that's not, you know, in terms of our health system and the way that it needs to help and, and pivot a and change to our, you know, our population and the disease that we have in that population, that's, you know, that change has got to happen.
0: I agree. And I think that the other thing that the word that sort of came up to my mind as you were saying that is that once you get that diagnosis, you almost feel like you're a burden then on the health system, rather than being like, you know, part of the system that should actually be helping you. And, And again, like there is A lot of elements of the system that are helping people but there are obviously a lot of elements that do need work as well Um, and that sense of being a burden I think is one that would resonate with many people who have come across either a chronic or acute diagnosis and that has led to like a disempowerment of you know what can I actually do and you know can I actually be healthy when I've got this diagnosis be it a cancer a chronic disease chronic pain those sorts of things.
1: Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I have to say, like, when I talk about this stuff and the fact that we need to do better, that's because I'm a change professional. And I think that there's always room for improvement in, in performance in wherever we are. And like, no one has benefited, I don't think, more in Australia than, um, than me from, from, you know, our healthcare system and, and what it is that, Um, we're able to do for people in this country who've got a disease like cancer like it's just been exceptional and I compare my experience to anywhere overseas that you care to mention and I would have been dead by now and that's just the reality right that's just the reality and I've seen so many people pass away and get to sort of treatment junctions where decision A has been made for me and it's been life extending and decision B has been made for them and and that this is you know it's a different decision and it's really sad Um, and so we're exceptionally lucky here but I think what makes this a really great place to live is that, that we, we continue to think about how we can continue to be lucky and how we can continue to do better for, for all of us and, um, and we know that there's big problems with access to healthcare and it's not equal across society and we've got to think about all of those issues as well and how to, how to do better at that.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree with you on that. And how are you, I guess, mindful of time, going to wrap up soon, but how are you now sort of using your um, your story and your purpose and your passion to be able to contribute to that? Because I know that's something that, yeah, you are very passionate about. Um, so what, is, what does that look like for you these
1: days? So a couple of different things. So I decided I wanted to do work very much in this area so I've set up my own consulting business at the moment where I you know I'm actually working with some of the doctors who are actually in my treating team um, about how we basically grow that care model and have more influence over what's happening which is you know taken me into partnerships with hospitals and all sorts of amazing um, pilot programs that we've done and just you know game-changing things that have just been amazing to be a part of and um, you know life-changing for for, for patients and participants which is just so you know meaningful to me and then um living my experience very publicly on um on instagram has led to a whole bunch of networks and and i've got two people um who you know have come to me and said explicitly that they are alive and they went and got tested for um bowel cancer related issues because of me and they found it and they've had treatment because of me and two people have said that to me um, directly and said you know I'm alive or my husband or my partner is alive because of you and that is just the most once you've had that you know doctors get this stuff every day right when you have that impact on people but once you've had that impact on people there is nothing that will ever stop me from from sharing my story publicly and and demanding that we do things better that we check things earlier that we lower screening ages that we you know do all of that stuff and Um, so that advocacy piece I'm doing more and more and more of now because I'm better and better Um, when you're in the thick of treatment as you would know you don't really have a lot of scope to to use your platform or to to build a platform but but I'm really trying to do that I think that you know I just want to I want to have a conversation about patient experience but because of my background is all about managing change and how do we do better with just the resources that we've got you know just by having a Better communication, better conversations, you know, um, better direction um, of, of resources towards priority, then that's I guess that's my my little niche of a platform and and I just want to just have more and more of those conversations.
0: That's so incredible Nicole you are so inspiring I feel like I'm walking away from this conversation so uplifted and you know it's, it's a conversation you. that like we've just said is is a difficult conversation for many people to have and you know a lot of people would walk away from a conversation like this you know feeling like it was a challenging one but I think your approach to you know your care and the change that you want to make in this in this environment, in this world is just so, so inspiring. And I think anyone can sort of take away these like nuggets of um, wisdom that you have and your approach to life and that glass half full approach that you have is just so incredible. Um, Where can we find you online if we want to look into more about what you are doing and um, the incredible advocacy work that you are doing?
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, So it's my Instagram account really is where I just live my entire life <laughs> and all things that I'm doing, which is just Nicole Coopy. Lovely.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, for coming on. And um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for sharing your story with us.
1: Thank you, Marika. I've just appreciated this time so much. And you are just a delight to speak to. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode with Nicole Cooper. I think we can all learn something from her incredible resilience and attitude to focusing on what she can control in life as opposed to what is out of control. If you love this episode and would like to support me and this podcast, I would be so appreciative. And you can do that by subscribing on your favorite podcasting platform and leaving a rating and review. Uh, You can also do so by screenshotting this episode and sharing it on your Instagram stories. And be sure to tag me at Marika Day. Thanks so much again, guys. And I will speak with you next week.